Welcome to the Hands-On, Hands-Off Podcast, where we talk about manual therapy with clinicians, researchers, and educators. We are curious manual therapists interested in battling misinformation on both sides. We know manual therapy is not a blanket fix for everything, yet we also appreciate that it can be a valuable tool for many. So, please sit back and enjoy the show as we unravel the complexities of who, when, what, why, and maybe even how to apply or not apply manual therapy. Here are your hosts, Derek Cluley and Seth Peterson. All right, Seth, so we're back at it for episode number two in the Hands-On, Hands-Off podcast. Uh, last week, we had a nice conversation, or last time, we had a nice conversation with Chad specifically about manual therapy, and I'm super excited. Today, we get to speak to Julie Fritz uh, about orthopedics and manual therapy and whatever um, comes to comes to our mind. What, what are you thinking there, Seth? Um, I am pretty psyched. I mean, I've had you know, the pleasure of reading Julie's work over the years. And it is like, you know, she's like a legend. So you asked me to come up with questions and it's been just, you know, I had to, I had to trim that down. I think when I ask people outside of the ortho realm, um, or mention her name and, and people don't recognize it. I'm like, what? How do you, um, it's just been years of, um, I think looking at Julie's work as a researcher and, and being pretty impressed with that. So I'm, I love, uh, I'm pretty excited about today and be able to kind of take a part of her career and how she got to where she is right now. Yeah, I am as well. I, I think, you know, in terms of, uh, especially the progression, I think it mirrors a lot of progression of what we've seen in physical therapy. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's also some intention with some of Julie's influential work. So I think it is exciting to have um, Julie on our show. So with that said, um, we'd like to welcome and introduce Julie Fritz to the show here. So welcome, Julie, to the Hands On, Hands Off podcast. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. So we're going to start off with some softball questions, if you will. So these are kind of fun ones. And we do this with all of our guests, or at least that's our intention, unless this falls flat on his face. But um, <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll see. You might abandon it after this. <laughs> right. <laughs> this will be maybe our second shot. That's it. But no, I think that'll be fun. So I, I asked um, all of our guests this. So I guess the first one that we'll do, and, we'll, and then we'll give you a more formal introduction um, once we're done here. But I think these are the fun ones that people like to listen to about as well. So if you had to eat one meal for the rest of your life, <laughs> what would it be? Uh, well, this might reflect what I had for lunch yesterday, but um, it would probably be some kind of yellow curry that has either shrimp or tofu in it. Ah, uh, very nice. We had we had some Indian food last night with some curry, and so um, I can see that. I don't know if my GI system would handle that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right, so next question. If you could have coffee with any historical figure, who would you choose? Oh, this probably also has a bit of a recency bias to it, but um, you know, the person who I would say right now that, that comes to my mind is a is a woman named Polly Murray, who I've been reading more about. And if you don't know that name, uh, I invite you to Google it. Uh, she's an amazing pioneer in civil rights and legal issues uh, from the 40s and 50s. I will definitely have to Google that name. I don't know the name, uh, honestly, but I will be Googling the name after this. All right. And so I think this is our last fun, whimsical question, if you will. Uh, what occupation other than PT would you like to try? <laughs> well, well I, I will tell you when I was a kid, I just thought the dream job of my life was to sell popcorn at Wrigley Field. So 
uh, you know, maybe that still is the thing that I just missed out on uh, in life and should consider going back to. So uh, I'll, I'll just go with that. So we, I guess should assume that you're a Cubs fan. <laughs> I was, and, and I, I plotted it out because I figured out popcorn had to be the lightest weight item to carry around the park, and nobody really buys it, so I could just watch the game. Ah, there you go. Very nice. Well, thank you for sharing those. Um, and again, getting a little bit more of a, a different side of you in terms of your background. But I know our listeners here are here to um, hear a little bit about from you and a little bit learn a little bit more about from you as well. So can you give us just a quick little, I know you've done this many times, so it doesn't have to be too long, but just a little introduction about yourself and what you do. I know our listeners kind of have a pretty good idea about that. But uh, yeah, if you want to expand on that, that'd be great. Sure. I don't know how far back you want me to go, but I went to PT school um, a long time ago in the early 90s at the University of Indianapolis and, um, uh, you know, started my career in, in orthopedics and outpatient orthopedics and, and, and knew even back to PT school that I was probably better suited to an academic career than uh, one in clinical practice exclusively. So that led me to the University of Pittsburgh, where um, I got my PhD, uh, stayed on there for a few years in, um, in, on the faculty and continuing on with some of the research that, uh, that I'd been involved with, and then moved to Salt Lake City about 20 years ago now, um, joined the faculty at the University of Utah, and have been here ever since. And right now I'm a professor in the PT department, physical therapy and athletic training department, and also now have a larger administrative role as an associate dean for research, which means I get to try to help other people do research as well as worry about my own. Yeah, and that last bit is, um, I, I find awesome. I love it when PTs can get themselves integrated into uh, research departments um, and kind of help mm-hmm. um, shed light on what PTs can actually bring to a research table. So I think that's great. Um, well, yeah, I'm interested, yeah. you know, Julia, I work with, um, you know, a lot of people early in their careers, a lot of physical therapists, and some of them, you know, get, they get to a certain point, they're not sure they move into academia or, you know, do they want to really get into research? It seems like you kind of recognized early on, how did you have that self-awareness to know that that was where you were going to fit best? Well, I, I'd, I'd like to claim that it was some heightened degree of self-awareness, but it was probably more of just a recognition of how ill-suited I was to the clinical environment, just from a standpoint of personality, maybe also from the standpoint of skill. But, um, you know, I remember in the very early on in my PT program, we did a Myers-Briggs scale, and um, I, I remember the comment of my instructor that my my degree of introversion was like, you know, several <laughs> standard deviations below what anybody who goes into a clinical discipline would ever want to be. And, and, and you know, I just kind of knew that what I was most passionate about was thinking about the way we treat patients, trying to understand the clinical reasoning. And then really, you know, and this was uh, in large part due to the fact that I had the great opportunity to work with and observe some really fantastic clinicians. And the way they made decisions um, really fascinated me. And and the opportunity to try to quantitatively understand what we often attribute as an art that we can only understand sort of from a qualitative standpoint, you know, that really animated and still does in, in large part what I've done, uh, what I've been interested in from a research standpoint. 
And Julie, I wanted to kind of follow up on that as well. Um, you know, a lot of your studies, um, yeah, I've been out. I've been out of PT school for about as long as you moved to Utah. So I moved from Montana um, out east, and then you moved um, from east out <laughs> west. And I think you probably made the smarter choice. But um, at any rate, uh, but along the way, you know, obviously reading some of your early work and obviously your research has always sort of seemed to maintain a focus on spine pain management. Uh, but it really kind of, at least from my observation, seemed to focus a lot early on, obviously, on specific interventions, treatment-based classifications, to now where we're at with a lot of your studies where you're looking at timing and sequencing of PT and how it fits into the greater um, health uh, system and how healthcare is delivered. Uh, but can you, I, I always admire, I'm, I think I, I fall somewhere else on a Myers-Briggs um, <laughs> piece. Actually, it took me, uh, uh, Steve George, who you know obviously very well, um, always makes fun of me because he's like, you were in the clinic too long to go into academia um, because I was in the clinic for about 16 years before I went into academia. Um, but my research, I mean, definitely has a, a level of focus, but I'm also kind of scatterbrained a little bit sometimes. And I always kind of like to dabble in other little areas and stuff, but I've always been impressed because you've stayed kind of uh, true to spine pain management. Why have you maintained such a focused intervention on, you know, management of low back pain and then kind of almost in that evolution of looking at it from so many different lenses. Yeah. I mean, probably because we still don't know what the heck we're doing and, and um, we just kind of continually find new dimensions where our understanding is lacking. So I guess as, you know, as, as someone who has a bent towards research, that's endlessly fascinating. Um, you know, maybe I'll wake up one day and we'll have solved what back pain is, why people get it and what to do about it. And then I'll need to move on and find something else to do. But um, needless to say, I don't think that day's coming anytime soon. And yeah, I mean, I really do think um, that the something so prevalent, yet so poorly understood and mismanaged to the detriment of so many people is, is, a, is an area where, you know, continuing to ask questions and trying to figure out how we could possibly be doing something a little bit better there, there continues to be motivation in that for me. So it really, you know, it really is just sort of an endless opportunity to ask questions when you investigate something that um, we just manage so poorly. Yeah. And I kind of want to follow up a little bit more on that too, because you're, uh, and I alluded to it uh, specifically, you're looking a lot now, at least from what I can tell um, the timing and sequencing of PT and how that impacts uh, low back pain and, and such. Uh, but early on, it seemed, especially as PT and, and when we're in the infancy of really being a true evidence-based, research-based, science-based profession, uh, it seemed that a lot of our research was sort of identifying what that most effective type of PT was. And so I think it was always, as a clinician, I was enamored with studies, you know, like manual therapy with exercise versus manual therapy, or even, you know, spending time trying to figure out which manual therapy specifically intervention uh, was most impactful. And ultimately, I think we all identified that the effect sizes for anything in these comparison trials, if there was significant differences, were not that big. Um, and so, and my question for you is, obviously, there's new interventions that come into play, um, pain education, pain science, and these sorts of things that I think we need to have those types of trials. Uh, but because this is a manual therapy uh, 
focused podcast. I'm curious as to what you think about the state of continuing research trials that compare, say, you know, types of manual therapy deliveries or even, you know, manual therapy with something else. Are we needing to pound that rock anymore? Or is it something that we need to move on from now and sort of start looking at these bigger questions? I don't know if that question makes any sense. Yeah, it it does. And, you know, I think this has just been a continual evolution, you know, over the time I've been in the profession. So, you know, when I went to PT school and emerged into practice and then research, the paradigms that we use to think about why we do manual therapy and how we do it were, you know, really grounded in a very biomechanical, pathoanatomical model about, you know, uh, whether it was sort of an osteopathic model of, uh, you know, bones being misplaced and things being slipped and, and the kind of language we use then, you know, those were the models that, um, that were prevalent. And to, to think about how we deliver manual therapy has evolved so much from then. And, and a lot of that early work that I found myself involved with was, was really critiquing those paradigms versus looking at more patient level factors that didn't fit those models. Um, you know, factors about whether it's the psychological status of the patient or just how long they've had the condition, things that weren't, they didn't have a place in those original paradigms that I learned. And, you know, I think we've just seen continual shifting of paradigms as we've gone along. And, you know, the one thing that I think still holds true is there's clinical value to patients in putting your hands on them and doing something therapeutic. And that really hasn't changed over that time. The way we understand that, the way we integrate it with other things that we do, the way we teach that to trainees, the way we sort of view it as part of who we are as professionals, that has evolved and should continue to evolve. But there's still something about the core of what's happening there when a physical therapist who's well-trained and confident in what they're doing puts their hands on a patient and tries to help them move and combines that with other things that we know and are trained to do. You know, there's something there that's the essence of who we are as orthopedic physical therapists that we should not sort of give away um, or, or view as passe, but we should continue to interrogate what actually is happening there that's creating the therapeutic response that we see in some patients. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think that's something that, um, especially as clinicians, at least when I, I teach some continuing education, and yeah, that's what they always want to know, like, which, you know, for my patient sitting in front of me, is there, is there a most effective approach to managing this patient? And that can be really hard to discern from reading research and even clinical mm-hmm. practice guidelines and those kinds of things. Um, and so I agree that, um, you know, that that still needs to be, I think you said, interrogated and determined and figured out. I have one more question and I'm going to turn the mic over a little bit to Seth because I'm hogging and and, um, (laughs) hijacking the mic here, if you will. So I apologize. You know, Seth is burning here with questions. (laughs) Uh, So our podcast obviously focused on manual therapy and you alluded to a little bit of manual therapy training, but I don't believe that you are like fellowship trained in manual therapy or anything to that extent. Uh, But I was also curious because a lot of the people that I know very well that have gone through PhD training 
with you at the University of Utah um, do come from extensive manual therapy backgrounds. Um, Jake Nagel, obviously, is yep. one. Um, some more recent individuals, Elizabeth Lane, Mary Derrick, and, mm-hmm. and, and such. Um, why? What is it about, I guess, a, a fellowship-trained PT or these PTs that um, you have determined to be successful, I guess, PhD students? And I'm not saying that. I'm obviously, you probably had PhD students who have not been. Um, but what is it that you find and the quality of, of somebody who has gone through that level of training um, to be appropriate for PhD training? You know, it's about learning how to think um, and learning how to reason and being able to understand that mentally in terms of how you're proceeding from observation to action. And, and I, you know, I think you bring up an excellent point. You, you raised some great examples of folks I've had the real pleasure of working with. And, you know, it's a real asset and, and um, advantage to me to be in the proximity of, of individuals throughout my career who really have had that in-depth training specific to manual therapy. And, and it, you're, you know, I remind people frequently, that's not my background. My background is finding those people and hanging around with them and trying to understand how they think. Um, because I think the way that they think um, has really helped me develop research questions that hopefully have some clinical context and meaning to them and are not the kind of things I would dream up in my little room in the ivory tower that are are not really relevant to people who actually um, are well-trained in the clinical application of manual therapy. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's very refreshing to hear. That's pretty cool that they've kind of helped to drive some of that. Oh, it's been, I mean, it's been, you know, from day one when I entered physical therapy, I've just been very fortunate to be in the right place with the right people um, who've taught me tremendous things. And that, that continues through today. Julie. Awesome. Well, I'll stop. Okay. Yes. Well, I was just going to ask, I mean, you know, you mentioned, yeah, at the beginning of your career also, and then now you're kind of, you know, in a similar environment. And that answered a lot of the questions I had, which it seems like a lot of your research is pretty clinically relevant. Um, can you, like, um, when you look back maybe at the beginning of your career, are there examples of individuals that influenced you and maybe what stood out as far as how they were thinking? Yeah. Uh, you know, if I put myself back there, um, the first person who comes to mind with well, two people, but uh, Tony Delito and Dick Earhart. And, you know, Dick, for people who are interested in manual therapy, if you don't know that name, you should was, you know, just a master clinician in in the truest sense of that word. And so, you know, working with him, but but not just seeing him, I've, I've had the good fortune to be around a lot of really high level clinicians, but his connection with Tony, who was the research mind, thinking about how do we research what has always been sort of presumed to be an art form that you can't really research, you know, this expertise and, and just whatever that secret ingredient is that expert clinicians have. So, you know, and what Tony really taught me, and again, this is like way back in the dark ages when physical therapy research was like, we used to kid about, you know, one more biomechanical analysis of somebody sitting, going from sit to stand. And, you know, that we extrapolated all these treatment regime, um, implications from studies that often were biomechanical assessments or anatomical dissections. And then, you know, we just assumed, well, if this muscle attaches here and here, then rehab for this condition ought to 
strengthen this, stretch it, whatever. And, you know, Tony was doing simple things like, well, if we want to know if patients are actually benefiting from treatment, maybe we ought to ask them. Um, and maybe we ought to just compare treatment A to treatment B and not presume that we know because of some anatomical theory or what have you, that treatment A is obviously the better choice than treatment B. And like nobody was doing that in the early 90s. And that fascinated me. And, you know, now like, <laughs> and Tony would be the first to say, like, I look back at, you know, award-winning clinical trials that he did. And like, you know, there's like 20 people in the study and there's a seven-day follow-up. And like, these are like groundbreaking studies because like nobody was doing that. And, you know, that's what I thought was most interesting and, and really informed the rest of the, the career that I wanted yeah, to Yeah, so you guys go about, um, you know, with the treatment-based classification, you know, the clinical prediction rules, trying to subgroup people or at least match interventions to people that might respond to it. And it seems like it, that has gone away a little bit. So um, where do you stand on that? What, what, what are kind of people in the research realm thinking as far as that goes nowadays? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think that's gone away. It kind of waxes and wanes. There's sort of this tension among the way clinicians view understanding how to make sense of patterns they see in practice. There's lots of statistical and research issues around how do you actually identify these presumed subgroups. Um, you know, it's it's morphed with technology into looking at more of precision medicine approaches and you know, individualizing treatments to patients, which may or may not be quite the same thing as subgrouping and assuming that there's broad categories, but yet individuals present in specific ways that we ought to match treatments to those phenomenon. So, you know, I think it's like everything in science and, and in practice has evolved, but this, this desire or need to try to tailor treatments to individual persons remains. I think the, we were talking about this with manual therapy broadly, but the paradigms or the way we think about how do we do that and how do we study it have evolved, will continue to evolve, need to evolve because what we were doing 30 years ago was pretty rudimentary. Um, but the concept of tailoring treatment um, hasn't and shouldn't go away. Yeah. And we actually had, this was interesting, um, a little discussion on, on Twitter where I at least posted this example of something that happens all the time in the clinic. It's like this minor change in the intervention is what I perceive to be a minor change. And it led it made the difference between the patient that wasn't responding to a patient that was responding. And at least my understanding is, you know, if you're in a you know, prescriptive RCT, that's not possible. And you kind of suggested that, you know, some things that are on the horizon are like adaptive clinical trials. Can you explain what that is? And Yeah, you know, so I think you bring up a really good point in in the sense of um, in the world of clinical trials, which I'm involved in a fair bit. There, you're right. You're exactly right. There hasn't been an ability to accommodate in, in behavioral treatments, complex multi-component treatments like physical therapists do. These adjustments, the individualizing of care to therapy to uh, patients, excuse me, and and so you know we. We've, we've prized in research these rigid protocols that nobody violates because it enhances the internal validity of the study. And, and there's a lot of questioning of that now because obviously that makes it less generalizable to the real world where 
any good physical therapist is adjusting what they do based on how the patient responds. So yeah, there's a few developments that hopefully create research in clinical trials that's more reflective of the process you're talking about. So one would just be kind of what's generally described as a pragmatic trial, where there's an allowance for varying degrees of flexibility in making the kind of adjustments that you described in that tweet. Um, There's also um, what you mentioned, which are what are called adaptive kinds of interventions, where there's pre-specified rules that would say, if the patient's not responding, then we build in an adjustment, um, which is at least getting more towards what clinical practice looks like versus what we might think of as a traditional randomized trial where it's like you're assigned to treatment A, and as long as the study's going on, you're doing treatment A, and if treatment A is just not working for you, well, that's tough because you've been randomized to treatment A. Um, And, you know, that's just not what any good clinician would do in the real world. So, yeah, I think, you know, I think there's more sophisticated strategies about how to try to mimic that while still doing a rigorous clinical trial that hopefully minimizes the opportunity that you're coming up with a biased um, uh, finding. Yeah, I think I liked that when you said that, because, yeah, I mean, on one end, you have those you know prescriptive RCTs where you can't change that on the other end. You have, like, I, I for some reason, think of you know, people that looked at this, uh, the manipulation clinical prediction rule, and it was like, the, you know, at the end of the, the study, it was only like 15% of people actually got manipulated. I can't remember what it was. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That you, you know, you can, you can have treatments that are so black box that you can't describe them at the end of the day. And that's unsatisfying as a researcher or a consumer of research. So, you know, there is sort of (laughs) both extremes to this kind of um, uh, this kind of issue about how to balance the need to have a protocol that you can describe so that when a trial is done, you can say this is what happened, but still allow for the kind of decision making that reflects what people do in the real world. So I want to take you down a little bit more of your more recent research work and kind of ask you some questions specific to that. Maybe get your researcher opinion. And I know as a researcher, you probably withhold opinions to some extent because you're obviously looking at the science and seeing what it is. Obviously, in research questions like the timing and the sequencing of care, whoops, and the timing of <laughs> a little sound there. We can edit that out because I'm on my own audio. <laughs> um, so with the with the timing and the sequencing of physical therapy and and, and such, that obviously there's a lot of barriers in, in a healthcare system. And I believe that even in some of your mm-hmm. research trials, you probably have met some of those barriers even when you're in a research study along with oh, yeah. physicians and and trying to get that sort of even to accommodate where you're actually, um, you know, supposed to be doing those things. Uh, but, but regardless of that, where do you think, you know, because you've done a lot of studies, actually, I think I've actually reviewed a few of your uh a few of your work there in terms of early access to care and then that sort of thing. Where do, where do you think we stand in terms of where PT needs to be inserted in the management of low back pain at this point in time? And if you could paint a broad stroke and get rid of all the barriers mm-hmm. that the healthcare systems and health systems kind of um, give us, uh, where, where, do, where do you think we, where do you think we belong? <laughs> well, you, you gave the appropriate caveat that, you know, I'm the 
the dusty old researcher who says like, we don't really know. Um, and, and what I mean there is we have a lot of really compelling observational data that suggests some really interesting things, right? That about uh, who's the first provider, what kind of care is provided. Um, if physical therapy is not the first provider, when does it occur? Um, and to me, those are really intriguing hypothesis generating study or uh, yeah, studies and findings. And there's interesting research to be done to actually examine in more in, in ways that are less susceptible to bias um, just exactly what would happen if we really re-engineered a care pathway. Um, there's some interesting research going on that various people are doing that kind of get to that question, which I think will be really intriguing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think what I would want to do if I got the magic wand is um, work within healthcare systems and structures that are interested in this question as I am. Um, and right now, I think that's kind of a barrier to moving beyond um, the kinds of studies we've been able to do, which just leverage naturally occurring data from healthcare claims or electronic health records um, about people making choices um, and move it to more controlled studies uh, that would be able to look more prospectively and handle some of the biases that are inherent in those retrospective designs. But the barriers that you're talking about, I think, limit some of the willingness, the desire to experiment in that area, which, you know, a person like me finds frustrating because I think these are really impactful, potentially very innovative kinds of questions that we could be asking, but require a broader partnership that's not always there. Yeah, and, and a really hard partnership to create. And I know that you've had to work yeah. very hard in creating that partnership, let alone, um, you know, other health systems. And Yeah, and, and it's, you know, it's that. not just health systems. It's, I think sometimes as physical therapists, we underappreciate that, you know, we have a perspective on this body of literature and who we think we are in terms of our professional identity and our ability to play different roles in a care pathway for back pain or other kinds of pain conditions. But consumers, they, you know, they may not share that perspective and or know that information. And so, you know, I think the, the barriers to a, a real innovative re-engineering of a care pathway, they cut across a number of different domains. And, you know, systems, providers, uh, organizational structures, payment structures is certainly part of it. Patients and, frankly, physical therapists, physical therapists themselves also present barriers. So anyways, it's it's a larger undertaking than I've all, often appreciated and really cuts across a lot of different areas where when you shift a paradigm, which is really what we're talking about, about if I make the decision as a consumer that my back hurts, I need to see somebody, that the first person I think about is not my MD, that's that's a big change for everybody. Yeah, and where we sit on that um, decision tree among patients, yep. at least in the United States, is actually probably um, maybe not even in the top three. No, unless unless somebody's had prior experience, then you know that changes. But you know, that's it, 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 if we just sort of wait <laughs> until enough people have had experience. Like I, I'm not sure we ever get to some sort of magic tipping point. Right. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Actually, that's a really great point, too, in terms of the, the patient level factors and considerations. I know we're I'm looking at something with another researcher. We're actually looking at 
decision, decisional conflicts and decisional mm-hmm. aids and things of that nature at the patient level and, and going beyond even just the, the, the clinician and the provider level, I think is of, of a curious other aspect and probably the most important aspect because yeah. that's the one that's deciding where they're going to be seeking care uh, through um, and yeah, then absolutely. Level, what kind of care they end up getting and what kind of care they end up following through. It's, it's a, it's a complex mess, isn't it? <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's, it is very complicated, but whenever you're dealing with, you know, human behavior, which is what we're talking about when you start to think about care pathways, you're talking about the behavior of providers and the behavior of patients Behavior is complicated, and it's informed by a lot of different factors, some of which sit at the surface and others are kind of buried. Yeah, I think kind of in the same vein, Julie, there's a, you know, a percentage that gets attributed to you often uh, from your research that like, you know, 10% of people, you know, actually end up in physical therapy with low back pain. And I think sometimes, especially recently, I'm, I'm kind of seeing that as, I don't know if you are aware of Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule. And he took that from Anders Ericsson's research and Anders Ericsson afterward had to write his own book to kind of correct that a little bit. He was like, well, he wasn't exactly right about the 10,000 hours. So I'm wondering if, you know, if you kind of gave the backstory, what do you think that extra 90% consists of? Is it just people that, you know, if only they got a referral to PT, they would end up in PT or what do you think? Yeah, you know, we've done a little bit of qualitative work on this. Um, you know, other researchers have done more. I, I think that in my experience in in some of that, you know, more qualitative trying to understand the phenomenon, um, that one, people are busy and they don't have a lot of time. And their perception, probably pretty correct perception, is that traditional in-person come a couple times a week physical therapy is just not worth it from the standpoint of the time investment. Um, And then of course we can look at the financial investment, which is where we often go to and, you know, sort of the, the person, the, the place we point the finger as physical therapists is, and it's, it's not inaccurate that financial barriers and the financial burden placed on the patient creates another mismatch between what the patient perceives as the value versus what their cost is, in this case, an actual financial cost. And then, you know, we have a lot of access barriers. So, um, you know, I, I don't know what life is like around you guys and your health systems and clinics, but, you know, I, within my healthcare system, we, we recently especially have fluctuated where we have several week wait times for people with, you know, just acute pain conditions and, you know, at least half of the value equation is just access when you're talking about people with relatively acute conditions. And so, you know, we, we, sometimes it's not easy to get to us for a variety of reasons. And, um, you know, I wonder sometimes if we, maybe we're just not as attentive to just the critical piece that the ability to get access is in delivering high value care. Um, so, you know, I think those are some things that, um, that, that I've certainly encountered. And, and, you know, I've talked to a lot of different patients who are like, I think you guys are great. Physical therapists do wonderful things. You help me after my knee replacement or whatever the context may be. And I'm going to go check in with my doctor and just make sure I haven't broken my spine or, you know, whatever kind of pathology they have in mind. And then I think that'd be great to come see you guys. Um, and you know, that's, that's that paradigm 
that we're talking about in terms of what patients think. The one other thing I'd add about the 90% is they don't all need to come see us. I, you know, I, I, I just don't believe that every patient, every person with back pain, uh, that's the right answer. Uh, so, you know, I don't know what the magic percentage is. There probably isn't one, but, um, I, I think we, we have to recognize that as well. A lot of people have, they just need some reassurance. Physical therapists could probably provide that, but they don't really need an extended plan of care. Yeah. I think that's a good summary. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely appreciate that. Um, and I appreciate the, um, reassurance that patients have. I, I'm not in the clinic as much, but I get asked tons of questions about tons of things. And I'm starting to realize a lot more of what actually happens to humans in terms of musculoskeletal issues is just that. And it's fine until it actually needs um, a little bit more attention. Um, And we can be a part of the problem as PTs and not necessarily always a part of the solution uh, if we were to be a little bit self-critical. But certainly I agree that there's a place for where we belong. It's interesting that you also brought up the access issue, not just so much of a you know, a scope of practice or, a, you know, sort of a, a legal or a payment kind of thing, but also just from a, a patient's perception sort of thing. I think that's a really accurate um, thing. I know when I was in the clinic, you know, it is hard for patients to get in and, and seek care. And yes, it might be cheaper from a cost perspective, um, but from that time investment and then the, you know, unknown of how much better I'm going to get uh, by committing to this, uh, PT program, I think is is something that we need to consider as mm-hmm. well. And one of the reasons and one of the barriers that we probably don't get patients that come in with low back pain all the time, because it, it is one of those things where it, it's, a top, it's, a, it's an effort for patients to actually have to make. Yeah, I, I think we underappreciate that quite a bit. Um, so, uh, you know, I I think we, we we really always have to think about, from a patient's perspective, What's the value equation? And, and a lot goes into that. It's how much does it cost is clearly a part of it, but it goes beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. Then we're still trying to figure out the benefit. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> we, already talked, we already talked about the effect size being small, so we'll see. <laughs> but um, so I had a, a, I know Seth might have a couple more questions, but I, I wanted to just ask you this question and then I'll turn over to Seth to kind of wrap a few of them up and then I'll ask you one more. Um, so in terms of where, I guess, if it, you know, we're, we're keep painting this broad brush, but where, where do you hope, the, what do you hope the physical therapy profession looks like in 10 years from now or, or whatever that time point that you want to, to call it? What, what, what is your hope for PT, I suppose? Yeah, it, it's an interesting question. I don't know that I have a specific hope other than I hope it's quite different <laughs> because I think the pace of change in healthcare delivery and um, you know various technolo- technological advances and the ways that we could be innovative you know i hope that we're not so wed to the status quo and and fearful of change that we look very similar to what we look now and and i think what i mean by that is you know kind of this model and again i'm thinking of musculoskeletal pain, back pain of, you know, X number of times per week, uh, in-person, face-to-face, one-on-one sessions. You know, I, I, I think we've got to be ready to embrace uh, digital health interventions, mobile health interventions, 
uh, use of remote technology, various different ways to provide information and feedback to patients that that clearly uh, COVID's taught us a good bit about that. Um, and, and it's just, it, it at least appears to be a good part of the way of the future of medicine writ large. And if we kind of bury our head in the sand because the financial model that we're used to is the only one we're willing to entertain, I'm not sure that's going to look good for us 10 years from now. Yeah, full support. Agree with you there. Yeah, I mean, I think to piggyback off that, the, the digital health stuff, um, just the other day, we were looking at, you know, Medicare has approved remote patient monitoring payment for psychotherapists. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I kind of right off the bat kind of wrote it off. Like, I don't know if I really want to spend that much time on this. You know, if you look at what the payment adjustment is, it's not a lot. Yeah. And then I sat down and, you know, my EMR system had a little video and I watched it and thought, well, it's really not that different from what I'm already doing. So I don't know. I don't know if you've read anything or, or looking at that, Julie. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know the specifics of the reimbursement, you know, with Medicare and in in this uh, specifically. But but I think you're you're raising those points of, you know, the the tendency to just want to dismiss a new thing because I'm going to have to learn to do something new. It's going to disrupt my usual workflows. Right now, the business model doesn't make sense to me. Um, and you know, all of those things may be true and, and it may be that it's not the right time or the right place to adopt a change like this. But I think what we all have to be cautious of, it's just kind of, I guess, part of human nature is just that kind of out of hand dismissal of anything that feels uh, new to the point where, and disruptive to the point where it's scary and, and it feels kind of existentially threatening. Um, and, you know, it sounds like you kind of got beyond that barrier to at least, look more closely at what's the potential value here. What does this look like actually from a business perspective? And is it something that I should integrate in um, to patients care or perhaps not, but, but at least interrogating the ideas is certainly better than, um, than just sort of a standard dismissal. Yeah. I think we're probably going to give it a shot. I mean, uh, I, I read a paper and I can't remember it was a commentary in JOSPT that made me think a few years back that, Maybe we should maybe we should try and implement this with some patients after discharge. And so we actually did a similar thing yep. with three patients with persistent back pain and had them track their pain levels and their exercise adherence. And it was just amazing. Afterward, the patients said it made them feel empowered, even though they were you know, punching their pain level in every day and were told, you know, you don't want to ask people what their pain level is. Um, so it's I thought that was interesting. So I had to go back to that. Okay, maybe we should do this. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm certain there are innovative ways to think about if a a key barrier in today's modern life is just the time it takes for a patient to commit to coming to see you under the usual model. How do we flip that so that we're disrupting patients' lives less, but still delivering the sort of therapeutic content that can help them improve their lives. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that the future could hold some really interesting possibilities. You know, it's, uh, we had one of the classes that I teach here at Duke is a clinical management class where we actually have groups of five students come in and they, they see a patient who has some level of care seeking. They may not be, it could be anything that they have. Um, but at any rate, the, the context is, is that, Two years ago, of course, we were in COVID, and so we were forced 
to host all of our uh, sessions on Zoom. And then we got all excited because we were able to go back into the classroom. And a part of me was like, wait a minute, that was one of the most impactful learning experiences that they ever had because I didn't know how to deliver healthcare. Yeah. I've never did telemedicine, but I, I figured it out. They figured it out. And it was interesting just seeing these um, individuals who had come in for treatment from a group of students with the faculty supervising this, um, how how impacted they were actually by that care. And I think more importantly, how impacted those students were and the ability to learn how to deliver that care. And so, yeah, we're excited that we're back on campus, but it's like, wait a minute, that was probably one of the greatest opportunities we had to sort of uh, stretch what we do in a learning environment, especially. Yeah, it's it's interesting whether it's, you know, I learned some of those lessons in a research context as people did in practice and in education that it, it was, you know, it's a rare time where all the barriers and the hand wringing and the stuff that keeps us from adopting something like, you know, more remote educational opportunities, like they just drop away, like literally in an instant. And, you know, we've been talking about doing more remote learning for like years, but then in a weekend, we had to figure out how to do it literally. And, you know, shame on us if we don't learn the lessons that can come out of something like that whether it's in, in the way we do research or the way we do clinical care or the way we, we um, provide education. Yep, 100%. All right, Julie, I know that your time is um, of, of, of precious and we appreciate all the uh, time that you've given us on this podcast. Uh, I think our listeners could probably find you on Twitter. I'm not a huge Twitter person, but I know <laughs> Seth is on there. So is, is that is that appropriate? I guess anybody probably could find your, your I'm there. I'm not... I'm not the most um, active or interesting person, but uh, I think my Twitter handle is at jfritzpt. But yeah, I I certainly find it a useful way to at least keep up with what some other people are thinking. Well, we'll share that within our um, uh, notes as well. Make sure that you have that. And otherwise, uh, thank you so much, Julia, for giving us your time. And uh, again, uh, thank you for all the work that you have done and helping to move what we do as clinicians forward and that endless pursuit of trying to figure it out. Great. Thank you guys. Yeah, thanks, been thanks, a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the hands on hands off podcast. Be sure to visit the Duke CMET that's C E M M T website for more resources and materials. That's sites.duke.edu slash CMET. And remember, please subscribe to our podcast.